Welcome to Through the Portal, a podcast from the Social Justice Portal Project, a national collaborative think tank hosted by the Social Justice Initiative at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Shout out U.S. Each month, grassroots activists and radical scholars will give voice to community struggles, national strategies, and sustainable alternatives for the future. The guest speakers, who are also Portal Project participants, explore what it means to walk through the portal of the current moment by centering racial and social justice issues. And we're your co-hosts. I'm Damon. And I'm Teresa. And today's guest is the phenomenal Kennedy Bartley, a brilliant organizer and strategist who has worked the last few years with United Working Families, a local political party that is building grassroots power. Uh, We talk about some of the the mechanics and efforts of addressing city budgets through the defund CPD campaign. Um, We also talk about what progressive taxation, as well as just participatory democracy, looks like at a local level. This is obviously a very Chicago-centric episode and conversation, but I do think the power dynamics and the mechanics and strategies and tactics that are discussed definitely are parallel in the other large metropolitan cities in the U.S. and also made a parallel between Chile and some things that are happening in the global south. So for folks outside of Chicago we love you. <laughs> we wish you were here, uh, but we think that you can still definitely plug into this wonderful conversation with Kennedy. So let's go through the portal. Let's do it. Coming through the portal, coming through the portal, coming through the, coming through the, coming through the portal. We are back entering into the portal and we have a very, very special guest, not only because they are acclaimed and experienced in this, you know, work of transformative movement and grassroots politics, but also because they are my friend and homie and somebody that I deeply admire. So we are going to have fun with this one in the portal with Kennedy Bartley. Welcome. Blah, blah, blah. Hey, Kennedy. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> so as, as, as always, we're rooted in tradition here. So I want to start with a two-part question and it's centered around time and, you know, we are in this portal and, you know, the, the kind of the prompt of this project is this, these last two years of pandemic and other seismic shifts in our world have been like a portal. And so in this time when you're in the portal, um, how has the world been treating you and how are you treating the world, Kennedy Bartley? Mm, yeah, the pandemic time is like, I'm like, you're not real. Like, this is not, you know, like, this is not time how I knew it before. Um, but I think it's interesting, like, like, we're, I guess, like, two years into the pandemic because, like, last year felt like a period of just, like, deep grief, deep joy, deep learning and growing and, like, unlearning in, like, a lot of deep an intentional work. And I feel like this year is kind of like the expression or the culmination or of all of last year. Like I have just recently been like reflecting on and like integrating a practice of like gratitude in the mornings as I like reflect on like all of the joy and like love and like, I don't know, just like feeling wanted and affirmed that like this year has like brought to me um, and just feeling like deeply grateful and overwhelmed by that love. And I think a lot of that comes from like, I hope like what I I give to the world. So I, I would say like the world is treating me as well as I'm treating it, you know, and like my people are treating me as well as I'm treating them. And that feels really beautiful. And like, yeah, I am just blessed and highly favored, really. Um, and, and yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I love to hear that balance. So let's set the table a little bit for our listeners and like just kind of, you know, start with the context. In this conversation, we want to center local grassroots organizing, what, you know, power and radical power looks like, you know, at the more local level. We've, we've gone really big. And before we get all deep and all into the, the, the concepts and the words and the, the stories, um, can you just kind of give us the context of your understanding of that language of local grassroots organizing and what are the spaces that have, you know, informed your understanding of, of that language? 
So how I'm defining local grassroots organizing, I actually had like a really interesting conversation with a group of folks um, last night and we were talking about like, how are we defining the quote unquote movement? And I think at least like in the last three years, I have been like situated in a way that I think is like really unique because I'm like kind of at the nexus of, you know, like labor, elected officials and then folks who exist outside of those spaces. Um, and, and I think that like the folks that up until, you know, my being situated here, I would define as like movement. And now I think that like, when I think about local grassroots organizing within the context of movement, I think about them in like less uh, distinct terms, like less like dichotomies. And I, I think that like, I am recognizing that like, labor is not a monolith, right? And like electeds aren't monoliths and all of those things. And so I think the local grassroots organizing are the folks who like embrace and recognize like the necessity that like this work be like bottom up and like recognize the parity between, you know, sweat equity and like money, you know, and like the folks who are like committed to being radical, right? Like actually getting at the root of these things. And I think, you know, I have the point of view of again like and I think it's a unique one kind of like feeling accountable to these various groups who have their own sets of like quote-unquote constituencies or folks that they're accountable to and then like by proxy adopting those like people as well uh but yeah that's that's how I think about it like folks who are on the ground and now I think it also involves folks who have like institutional power but like who leverage it in a particular way you know, and you you have a lot of passion, um, Kennedy, and um, you know, which is an important piece of being able to do this kind of work. Um, you know, what what is it that really drives you? That motivates you to to do some of the work that you're doing? I think love is like at the center of like mm-hmm. why I do like most everything. It is very difficult for me to make distinctions between like the work and like the personal, you know, and so it it feels like just deeply personal. It does in ways, I think, like for the beginning parts of like my organizing life, it felt like, you know, I would be like, this is for self-preservation. Yeah. But it like goes beyond that. Right. Like it's like beyond survival, you know, and that forces me to like think about this beyond like self-preservation or the preservation of like, you know, my 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 folks. And so I do think that like love is always that that thing and like the love that I have for a particular group of folks for, for, for people period, but like for a particular set of folks um, that yeah, too long didn't read love for sure. <laughs> it's the driver. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. And I've, I've seen that love in action. So if, if my memory serves, we've known each other for years. If my memory serves me correctly, you were either a part of or tangential to like BYP 100 as the Chicago chapter was kind of blowing up, but we really connected and got and like got deeper in this you know radical partnership in uprising in 2020, uh, particularly in building out and creating strategy around the defund CPD campaign. So I kind of want to connect the dots from you know the mechanics of local power that we want to cover in this episode to our first episode of abolition because um, you know not only did I see you function in like our campaign committees or, you know, in part of the steering committee and building strategy. I also saw you leading and operating this citywide table that brought together, you know, young abolitionists who most of our organizing have usually been theoretical or, you know, I'm not saying this word in the pejorative sense, but like performative, direct action heavy outside of the institutional space. Uh, But as the portal opened of 2020 and the conversation around city budgets was shifting and changing, there was a a much greater participation in like the budget of Chicago and sitting at the table with labor and, you know, different like IPOs and and even alder folks. And so I want to kind of go back to that time, could you explain this table that I'm, I'm talking about and what were some of the initial learnings that were a shift or that were unique in that time that I think probably resonates with many other cities and other spaces about how local organizing is expanding and becoming more dynamic? Yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, I feel like anytime folks bring up the budget, my eyes light up and at the same time, like <laughs> get low because it just feels like, you know, that 
multi-year project, like was my baby and like the baby of a a few like really key folks. Um, And it was like also deeply exhausting and like very, very hard. The demands that are like popular demands and like the institutional or instrumental demands Mm -hmm. that are kind of like paired with like material expressions of our demands, like via legislation. And so the only way to really do that is to like bring electeds, you know, community folks, abolitionists, labor to a table. And then, you know, in 2020, that was like kind of the second iteration of that coalition. And yeah, I think that it was like really wonderful because it was like the time where you saw this mass embrace and like buy-in to the idea that like incorporating legislative and electoral strategies into our movement spaces, abolitionist spaces, like our strategic contestations for, for spaces that like we were like never supposed to even think about, you know? And it's like, when you think about, you know, the arc of a campaign, right? Like you're naming your targets, you're naming like, you know, how you're, how you're planning to escalate and like, why wouldn't escalation culminate around like the easiest entryway into, you know, all of the funding that we know that we need. Right. And so the budget is like a beautiful place where we get to like make demands that have like material impacts, you know? Um, and so, yeah, that's that space. And it was really wonderful to, for, for defund, um, CPD to be in that space, you know, and kind of like in many ways to serve as the left flank of that coalition and kind of create a space where like, when we're talking about red lines, like when we're talking about what is required for us movement folks to give movement elected, like the go ahead to vote, we need to be talking about defund. Like if defund isn't on the list, then like, no, you know what I mean? And I think like in years past that myself and like a couple of other people were like, yo, this is like a bare minimum. And it was very difficult to like both make and win those political arguments. And we made them anyways. Um, and I will say that all nine of the alders that I engaged with did all vote no on that first budget. The second year was a little Can, different though. I, I want to slow that down a little bit. I just want to, for, oh, yeah. for folks who may not be in the context, like when you say red lines or you say vote no, can you give like the context of what that no vote is, what you mean by red line and, and like what the, the actual demand was and why that was so unique to a space that is talking about budgetary votes? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for slowing me down too. So like when I say red lines that means like unless we have this set of things we are not moving forward right so if we're talking about the budget the time when like every city department gets funded or defunded right like this is the time where we make demands where we say like tax the rich invest in communities and defund the police like that has been the constant in the last three years um, of us engaging in the budget in this way you know if we say for an example our red lines this year is if there are any increases to the police budget, if there are no progressive revenue options, if there is like minimal, you know, investment into office of violence, you know, like then we will vote no. And so city council, the 50 people right across our 50 wards who are elected to represent us, they are the ones that vote on the mayor's budget. And folks say it, over and over because it's true, like budgets are moral documents, right? Like this is where you get the opportunity to put your priorities on paper. And so what we say is like, these are the things that we need to see in this budget or don't need to see in this budget for us movement to motivate in favor of like a yes vote or a no vote. And so that first year, it feels weird to be like when I first built that, you know, but like when we first built that coalition, there was an increase to the police budget all of the progressive revenue that we introduced, right? Meaning that we wrote the legislation to tax the rich, all of that, that we introduced, none of it um, came through. And there was like abysmal investment in, in communities. And so we were like, we want y'all to vote no. And all of the quote unquote movement alders did. And so in 2020, which Damon was referencing, it was a bit different. It was in the midst of uprisings. Um, it was at a time where like, if you weren't talking, right, like defund had created um, the conditions so that, you know, a part of being a progressive, quote unquote, like a part of the litmus test was like where you stand on defund. 
And so, you know, that was like an easy and obvious red line. Um, despite that, though, a set of our alder did end up voting for that budget. And that's where, like, you know, when I say like this coal, like the budget coalition was both like wonderful and hard um, because like when things like that happen, like when you put so much of yourself and so much of movement and like work so hard to like, you know, get folks who historically don't believe in these strategies to be there. And then folks who we got in office, frankly, are like, nah, you know what I mean? Like that is like deeply hard. And it like puts us in this position where we have to figure out what accountability looks like. And I don't, I think in our abolitionist spaces and IPOs, all of that, I don't think that we've gotten that figured out. Like we don't have the infrastructure, right? So like every time it's like a case by case basis, we're trying to figure out what accountability looks like. And, you know, now with the introduction of this idea of co-governance, right, with like both movement and electeds co-governing, what I would like amend to call contentious um, Mm co-governance that is has all been introduced as a result of this of this budget coalition, which is like a really beautiful and wonderful thing. And I've seen how the infrastructure built in that space can like be like copy and pasted into like other spaces. And for that, I think that like you know, the, the movement, the city is like, will forever be like changed and like bettered, I guess, because of that. And at the same time, a lot of contradictions, um, are surfaced, right. Cause they've been there, but like they, they come online and I don't know that we have the muscle for, for principled unity. You know what I mean? Like the, like we see contradictions and like we run from like the pol- real political conversations necessary to like synthesize and like make that generative. So, you know, that's what the, the budget was a big thing. It carried a lot <laughs> um, and I could talk about it all day. So you should, you know, cut me off. <laughs> well, you mentioned in your three point uh, platform, um, the idea of putting more money into community development projects. Can you talk a little bit more about what some of those um, ideas were and some of your work around community development efforts? Yeah, yeah. And that we that our vision and that we push for, for sure. Um, I, I will say one of if I if I uh, left this movement and did nothing else, I think something that I am most proud of um, is the fact that last budget, eight budget amendments were written and none of them were written by labor or by elected officials or folks who have this institutional knowledge like it was the folks who make up these campaigns and these coalition spaces that wrote the legislation that would amend the mayor's budget to say like, no, actually this is what we want. And we're not like leaving it up to electeds or leaving it up to right. Like labor leaders and shout out to the ones who are on our side, but you know, we are doing this. And so, you know, when you ask like, what are those investments? It's folks from Peacebook writing a budget amendment to make sure that Peacebook, you know, the Peacebook is funded in the budget. Um, give us a little, give us a little drop on, on what the peace book is for, for folks who might not know. Shout out to good kids, mad city. So the peace book explicitly like names a defunding of the police, um, to fund restorative justice in every school, um, to invest in an office that is like rooted in like not violence and just violence prevention, but violence interruption. Um, and it really is one of the most explicit expressions of like our demands, right? Like the second half of like defund and, right? And so, yeah, I think that it is like a comprehensive piece of legislation that kind of like creates the infrastructure for these uh, more transformational, like human-centered responses um, to various forms of, of, you know, violence and harm and conflict. Um, So shout out to the Peace Book. Um, and again, GKMC for holding that down. A lot of wonderful young people. Um, so that so that passed? No, no. So it, it didn't pass. But I, you know, there's like there is like important continuity and like mm-hmm. important steps happening in mm-hmm. all of this. You know sure. what I'm saying? And if in in at another time we can really talk about the budget specifically and the arc and the implications. Um, but I will say that all eight of those budget amendments. So one that canceled the shot spotter contract yeah. to invest in the peace book, one that struck, you know, the, uh, all of the CPD vacancies, 
um, you know, so that we had more revenue to invest in our stuff. You know, one that like got rid of the CPD propaganda machine that is like the 99% increase to their advertising budget, right? All of these wonderful things creating, you know, more sustainable long-term housing. All eight of those budget amendments made it into the budget committee. Historically, when we introduce legislation, it gets sent to the rules committee, which is where legislation goes to die. If your stuff gets sent to rules, it's like, damn, bro, like, you know, you, you gave it your best, you know? And so it was a really big deal that they like missed the fact that we were like, no, we have legislation to defund the police right now. They sent it to the budget committee and the implications there. It like, no, it didn't pass. And because it's in the budget committee, because it's been 60 days, whenever we find it strategic, we can call that up to a vote on the floor and make older people say you're either for the peace book or you're not right. Like you are either for Mm -hmm. increasing the police budget for their propaganda machine, or you're not, you're either for canceling a contract that is racist and affect creates more violence or you're not. Um, And so that that was kind of some of like the legislative work um, that we did. And it's hard to talk about the investments without talking about where we get the money from. And it's always CPD. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So y- y- you're giving us some technicals here that I, I really appreciate because I, I want to talk about the city as a political landscape um, in this series and kind of in our movement thrust. We have these large ideals, these large ideologies, these large platforms, you know, divestment from police and prisons, uh, you know, uh, opposition to corporate power. Uh, And I think, you know, many of those things are under the umbrella of participatory democracy. Uh, And so until, you know, kind of seeing you work, those things, although important and prevalent for me, were still very abstract. But then seeing the, the, the city government infrastructure as a tableau or a canvas to kind of make those demands concrete was really interesting. And I got I, I learned a lot from bureaucratic processes in ways that I never expected. You got really excited, David. <laughs> I did. I did because, you know, we, we have these things of of we want to talk about participatory democracy, but until you see the executive power of a mayor and how the legislative cycles go, it makes it clear of like, oh, it's not that we don't have the right ideas, right? Like you named earlier, we actually don't have the infrastructure to hold government accountable. This this representative system is not democratic. If most people want, even if they don't believe in complete abolition and change a new world and revolutionary things, you know, we had the um the budget survey that showed, I forgot the number, it was like 87% of people in the city, and not just, you know, our contingency from all over the the, the map had a desire for redistributive investment from policing into communal services. Um, and then we saw the mechanisms of how that's able to be blocked by executive leadership, particularly our mayor here, Lori Lightfoot. But I want for folks who are listening in other cities, you know, if there are structures to that, we can parallel of like when we talk about the 21st century and the politics that we want to push, um, you know, I think you can also bring in your experience. I know you're transitioning out of, but the infrastructure of United Working Families, if you can explain how like that type of space allows us to approach city government as a way to expose the anti-democracy that is happening in our local levels. Because we think that like the local is supposed to be more pure and like Congress is where, you know, these type of heavy handed lobby funded anti-democratic practices happen. So yeah, can you just talk about the city as a political landscape and and what our radical futures look like of should this be where we we focus more of our energy? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it's like interesting too, like when you're talking about the framing of, you know, local government being seen as like more pure and like Congress being like, you know, this like hellscape of like, you know, y'all are never doing anything right or radical, right? Um, like being in Chicago feels so, so important, particularly because I can't, I can't talk about the Chicago landscape without talking about neoliberalism. And I can't talk Ooh. about neoliberalism without talking about Chicago, right? And so <laughs> thinking about, and here's like the global piece that I won't get too into, but thinking about what's happening in like Chile right now, because like neoliberalism was like a global project always, mm-hmm. you know, and the fact that like it was a coup led by the U.S. in Chile and then that led to like 
neoliberalism as born in Chicago at University of Chicago by Milton Friedman, right, was like tested in Chile. And like now Chile has like the most radical president and like they are doing some like really dope things. And like you are seeing very like movement focused and centered and led government. So what does that mean, right? Like butterfly effect, like what does that mean about the birthplace of neoliberalism if like one of the first international sites of neoliberalism is now like eradicating that, right? And Chicago, I think, is like deeply, deeply entrenched. Um, I mean, right, like it is it is like within the fabric of the city. Um, and when I say neoliberalism, that is the the practice, the theory, the politic of you know, austerity, but we have to talk about austerity, like from the point of view of its, of its victims. Right. So let like textbooks tell it austerity is like cuts across the board, um, to all services. But what we see is, you know, cuts to education, cuts to housing, 50 public schools shut down, six mental health, public mental health centers shut down, increases to police budgets. Right. So like, it's not austerity across the board. And that's how we know that it's like a matter of political will. In Chicago, it's really interesting. This is like, we don't even have partisan local races, right? Like the folks don't even say if they're Democrat or, or Republican because it's just like a democratic machine. A democratic city, monopoly, yeah. You know, but it's really important because now we get to see like the important distinctions between like liberalism, neoliberalism, and like real, like what happens outside of that. Um, I think that UWF is like an important vehicle and infrastructure and and space that like should be occupied by by our folks um, to really uh, build infrastructure and like really put in motion like what happens outside of this like democratic machine, this neoliberal machine. Because, yeah, again, like when I when I think about you know, like the way in which like our neighborhoods, particularly like on the west and south sides, but also like up north, right? Like with some of the highest populations of folks experiencing homelessness and some of the highest immigrant and refugee populations, like those things are like manufactured, right? Like these sites are manufactured. The fact that the city felt like they needed to close 50 public schools was manufactured, you know, and, and that's what we're up against. And I think that UWF names that um, in a way that is like really important. And I think that if not for the leadership and the staff within UWF, I think that there is like a very necessary naming of like we are under a neoliberal agenda and order and we need to do something outside of that. And we rightfully name like these are like political choices. This isn't because we have to like we don't have to increase property taxes. We don't have to shut down anything. Like these are political choices and they're false choices, right? Um, And so I think that there is like a really important naming of the conditions and bringing folks in to be able to articulate that as well. And so that like folks know like when they are choosing, right, between sending their kids to, to daycare or paying a bill, like it is a political choice that there isn't like universal childcare, you know? And, and so folks get to name like the makers of their conditions and then get to do something about it, you know, because there is like this infrastructure for leftist politics in motion um, that takes up a healthy section. I mean, we are still minority and we'll probably all, always be a minority party, but still it takes up a healthy section of the electoral in legislative space. I mean, we just sent somebody to Congress, you know what I mean? And so I think that that stuff matters. And I think it's like, we're here when y'all are ready. So what I hear you saying, right, is that we don't fully yet have the, the infrastructure to hold political actors fully accountable, but UWF, United Working Families, is an example of a type of structure where we can functionally mobilize against neoliberalism and, you know, have these space for contestations outside of just like the name United Working Families. Can you, for folks who've like never heard that language before you use the word party, like what is it on a technical basis and does it exist in other spaces outside of Chicago or are there like sister 
type of formations that if you're saying this is something to join or really a place where we can activate, can you make it more legible for people? Yeah, yeah. So United Working Families is a a proto-political party, right? We are in the midst of building a party. And when I say that, right, like folks are familiar with the Democratic Party, the Republican Party. Um, And so we are we are building outside of those spaces because recognizing that those spaces aren't like as dichotomous as they want us to believe. Um, And so. Yeah, it, it is. It is a place that is um, democratic. Uh, it is membership driven. Uh, we are made up of individual members, some folks in labor. Um, we have elected members. We have IPOs, which are independent political organizations that exist in like particular wards or regions in the city. It really is a space where like if folks are members of UWF, like there is parity across who gets to make political arguments that like really inform the direction of the party and really inform like the agenda and the platform, right. That is then adopted by a set of elected officials who say that they're like bought into this project. It is a project. UWF is a project. Um, and it is a party building project. And I think that it is, it is a place where like a lot of necessary political, debate and decision-making happens in a way that is like deeply participatory and democratic and like folks rightfully name like the shortcomings and like the pitfalls and in the, the room for growth in that space. And then that is embraced because like there are built-in structures for there to be consistent conversations. You know what I'm saying? Like every two years, there's a convention every year. There's a party committee retreat, you know? And so like, I do think that it is a place that was built by our people and should continue to be contested for by our people. And to the point about like, where is this happening outside? I, um, in the last year, have talked to a number of different bodies of people that exist similarly to UWF. Um, A lot of them are more formally affiliates of the Working Families Party, which is a national party that functions in a similar way. And yeah, it's just national. So they, they, you know, make national endorsements and like they have formal affiliates like UWF, we share the name and like we are in deep partnership um, in a particular way with them, but aren't like official affiliates. Um, but I, I've had conversations with, you know, India Walton and the folk up in New York who are a part of like the New York Working Families Party. And, you know, we talk to folks on the West Coast. It's really interesting every time folks kind of say that like Chicago is the model because we're like, man, <laughs> you know, like we love to hear it, though. <laughs> yeah, but we love to hear it. We love to hear it. And it's like you when you zoom out, though, it's like it's true. You know, like we are doing a lot of things that haven't been done before. And I think it's because we have embraced the fact that we are just like, doing one big experiment. And I think that UWF, um, again, because of its leadership and because of its staff, um, has made itself nimble enough uh, to, to embrace that, that experimentation as well. On the uh, United Working Families website, there's a lot of uh, personal statement here that you made, sort of again about how you got into this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing how passionate you are, uh, but you also have a lot of hope. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe you could talk a little bit about what makes you so hopeful. Mm. You know, to borrow from from Miriam Kava, like hope is a discipline. And I think that like in the same breath, like happiness is a choice, you know, and like mm-hmm. joy is a choice. And like so it is a part of like a daily practice and and exercise and like finding reasons to be hopeful. And I think like something that like helps me is like being very clear about the fact that we have not tried everything yet, you know? And so for that reason alone, I am hopeful, you know what I'm saying? Because I'm thinking of new things all the time and they're much more brilliant. You know what? I said, I'm gonna stop doing that. Being like smarter people than me, you know, I'm smart and other (laughs) smart and brilliant folks are like dreaming up new possibilities and and new ideas and new like experiments all the time until we have exhausted all of that. um, Why not be hopeful? You know, I love that. 
I love that. We haven't tried everything. Can, can you can you go deep on one of those? Do you have things that you have imagined or that other smart people have discussed or proposed that excite you or give you some of that hope that like, oh, once we get the capacity to try that, that's going to give us so much more information about the world we need to build? As you said, Damon, I am I am transitioning out of UWF and in, in the capacity that I've been there. Um, and so I've just been in like this deeply reflective and like zoomed out space. And I'm like thinking about a few years ago, how difficult it was to get buy-in about like this legislative and this electoral stuff, right? Like, first of all, it's wonky. And I was like, yo, I'm an organizer too. Like, I don't think that this stuff is sexy and I'm an organizer. So I'm like, this is how we, you know, like, and you know, we have to finesse and like, you again, contest for all of these spaces that everybody else does. And now defund CPD, stop, 33rd Ward working families all have just like come together and turned in 4,000 plus signatures to get a question that is explicitly like a defund related question on the ballot for an election. You know what I'm saying? Like that is in an electoral, like the embrace of an electoral process the occupation of like an electoral process, you know, allowing folks to like say whether or not they believe that the city of Chicago should reopen all the closed mental health clinics to, you know, to support treatment, not trauma, um, which would send an EMT and a mental health professional instead of a police officer to um, mental health crises calls. And like the last however long we hear like, Black folks, Latinx folks on the South and West sides don't believe in defund, but it's like those 4,000 signatures say otherwise. Seeing like just um, an inch of that embrace of these processes makes me hopeful about like what it means when that is like compounded, you know, and there's like more of that. I want to just, I want to just pull out something that you just said because um, that... (laughs) That talking point is something that hasn't been at the front of my mind as much recently, and it just brings up memory for me of, so I I mentioned earlier there, you know, in 2020, there was a budget survey, which is like a very mundane, not sexy political thing, but there was massive participation in this budget survey. And it was overwhelmingly in the favor of redistributive investment from police force. The claim we got back more or less was that it was disproportionately white that there was too many white people who were voting on the side of reinvestment and defund, um, which has never happened <laughs> in my little young understanding of political history of having too many white people on your side is now being used against you. And it was saying that like, there's not enough black people, black and brown folks who support this. So one, I just want to like note that out of like how disingenuous our spaces are because in any political thrust that aligns with power, having too many white people would never be used as a never a heard of that. Point. <laughs> so I, I just want to I just want to name that of how absurd and ridiculous and almost comical, uh, you know, this system can be. But then we get into these false dichotomies of like disengagement versus electoral politics as being kind of like sheepdogged and like, you know, upholding oppressive power. And what you're describing complicates that and shows that that's not true. And so electoralism, once it is more participatory, what is exciting about it is that it's not just voting red or blue or in Chicago version, light blue versus navy blue um, to pick your representatives to make choices for you. And you get to say yes or no on them every four years that you actually get to vote on legislation or vote on a political agenda directly um, feels like that point you're making of there's so much more possibilities. If I could, instead of saying alderman so-and-so versus alderman weirdo, like this is what I want. This is what I want on my block. This is where I want investments to go. Uh, That for me, once people understand that as a pathway of what electoral politics can be, uh, I think it can expand our toolbox and our strategy. So I'm just excited about that. So yeah, keep going in on like what this 4,000 signatures taught you and what, you know, more feels possible. Okay. So it's, it's folks who claim to talk to Black and Latinx folks all the time. And those folks laugh in the face of anyone that says defund. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, 
I see 3,497 signatures from folk in Washington Park, Woodlawn, Parkway Gardens, some parts of Hyde Park, back in the yards that say that they actually do believe in this. And so I'm like, either y'all aren't talking to them the way we're talking to them or y'all aren't talking to them at all. You know what I'm saying? Somebody lying. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so um, just seeing the embrace um, that we got, you know, in the 20th ward, in the sixth ward, pretty much all black and uh, the, the 20th ward is black and Latinx. Um, seeing like the embrace of defund, the embrace of the reopening of the public mental health clinics, to me, that is a mandate saying that the people don't believe in neoliberalism, right? Mm-hmm. They don't believe in slashing public services like public mental health clinics, and they don't believe in neoliberalism's muscle the police. You know what I mean? And so I think that that gives me so much hope because I'm like, that is like a drop of the bucket of the amount, uh, the amount of black and Latinx folks who are in the city, you know? And so like, once we scale these projects up, um, and once we like recognize that this is a proof of concept, right now we see that the concept is effective and it's doable and it activates and animates people now we like continue to build upon the infrastructure that we built with like the budget coalition where we brought folks who didn't even know that each other existed to a single space. And like where we got folks like versed in how to write legislation and we got folks to believe in talking to people to like get them to vote. And you know what I mean? Like what we're doing is we're creating an election for ourselves. What side are you on my people on the ballot? You know what I mean? And it's like, it is just like really, really wonderful. And I'm just like, how could I not be hopeful? You know what I'm saying? Because we get to do this whenever we want. And so that's the thing like about, about capitalism, right? Like creating its own grave diggers. Like the conditions are so dire that like at this point, like it's not like I want to like, you know, reorder or reorganize, you know, how things are. I want to like transform. It's like, I need to, you know what I'm saying? I have to. Um, And I feel like folks are like in a place where it's like, you know, for folks experiencing homelessness, when they know that like there are four times, uh, almost four times as many like vacant properties as there are folks experiencing homelessness. It's like the next time a building goes up, I'm going to occupy it. You know what I mean? Or like, we we see folks like Jeanette Taylor, alderwoman of the 20th Ward. It's like the next time they try to close one of my kids' school, I'm going to go on a hunger strike. Or you see folks who are like, the next time they try to put a coal plant or whatever else in my ward, we're going to go on a hunger strike. We're going to like chain ourselves and then we're going to vote that person out. They can keep trying to kill us. It breaks my heart to like see these conditions and... um yeah, like hope is a discipline and we cannot give in to despair because like they are going to continue to go harder. We have to respond, but also be on the offensive because we can't be as reactionary as the right, you know? And I think that like we're, we're getting our stride. So I'm, I'm, I'm swimming in this. I'm, I'm feeling fed. I don't, I, I, I want to keep going forever, but as we're being conscious of time and, and, and leading into our wind down, I want to talk to like, one more dimension of this political sphere that you kind of referenced, but I want to go deeper. So when we've talked about neoliberalism thus far, it's been around austerity cuts and then the over-reliance on militarized policing to maintain control and order um, and this push for uh, a deeper availability of public resources. Um, But what you're kind of talking about now is also what it looks like to oppose capitalism. And similar to what I named about abolition, that conversation or discourse is often very big. Um, we can talk about it easily on the global level and like transnational corporations, but usually we focus on DC and their relationship to the corporate lobby. Uh, but what I saw and like learned from you a lot is a way that we can actually have a concrete practice in resisting capitalism can also happen in this local level through these efforts of one, acknowledging how fines is a way that we're balancing our municipal budgets, but also getting deep into this conversation about progressive taxation. And so I just want to like give that to you similarly to how you talk about those 4,000 signatures around reinvesting from police services. 
what has your experience of these last few years taught you about how we can oppose wealth inequality and inequity and how the, like the tax code enshrines the power of capital to dominate our people? So, yeah, I mean, the past three years, the past, you know, however, however long that I've like had an understanding of like cities being run by budgets, like you see that they balance the budget on the back of working class and working poor and, and, you know, unemployed folks. And, you know, they do it like to Damon's point through fines and fees, you know, in the last budget, the mayor said, now, if you're going six miles over the speed limit, the speed cameras are going to get you right. Like they are nickeling and diming folks who barely have nickels and dimes. You know what I mean? And so, man, I don't know, like if folks are, are familiar with like the shock doctrine, you know, and like Naomi Klein's work, but like kind of this idea that like the right is really good at being ready to move into action during crises, right? Like in the same way that, you know, these rabid capitalists and neoliberals were in, you know, New Orleans after Katrina and like struck quickly enough to make it so that Katrina has all charter schools and no public schools, you know, like these folks have like codified, right, like their destruction. And so similarly in Chicago or at the state level, we have a flat tax um, meaning that everyone is is taxed this and there isn't like a fair tax where like that is like literally taxing the rich, right? Where folks are taxed commensurate to their income levels. And we saw someone like Ken Griffin, the richest person in Illinois, spent more money to beat the fair tax than he would have had to pay in taxes. These folks have been playing the long game. And anytime at the city level, we're like, okay, well, we want to institute a corporate head tax. We want large corporations to have to pay a tax on every employee that they have because we know that they've got it. Folks are like, nah, that actually runs afoul of the state constitution, you know, and it's similar to the FOP. Every time we want to defund, it's like, that's actually those, those dollars to the police are actually contractually obligated. And it's like, okay, word, when can we talk to the person who, you know, is in, in, in charge of the contracts? And it's like, oh, actually that contract happened behind closed doors and y'all didn't even know what was going on. And also like, not only can y'all not be in the room, Older people who y'all are elected also can't be in the room. That is why we have to contest for like these spaces. That's why we need a movement mayor. You know what I'm saying? Who is going to let us in the room when they're negotiating with the FOP? That's why we need a movement mayor that's going to go down to Springfield and be like, yo, I'm lobbying for the fair tax because the city of Chicago, home to like the financial district, you know, on LaSalle, like, we need to start like taxing all of these trades that are happening. We need to start taxing all of these like multi-million billion dollar corporations that are just like here and barely paying anything. Right. Like we need to start taxing folks like you, Chicago and Northwestern, you know, these like nonprofits that are supposed to like give charity. And we know that they don't and they don't pay a lick of taxes. Right. It's so deeply rooted. And I will say that that has bought me in to the idea of electoralism as it relates to elected officials as well. We we need the fifth floor. That's the, the mayor's seat. We need 26 alders because us shouting in the streets and getting our asses beat and yada, yada, like that's, you know, like that's not doing anything but like us shouting in the streets and getting our ass. And that's not to say that that isn't important, but it's just like, folks are like dying. You know what I mean? And like folks are hungry and like, it is very hard to be in the streets when you're hungry. You're right. And you're like, you so, um, yeah. Yeah. So the taxing the rich and the defunding of the police, we're going to keep doing it. But like, we need real like institutional power at the end of the day. Okay. So that is one, just, I got goosebumps. That is inspiring and so well culminated. Uh, we, we have like a, a closing question that we ask, but I want to uh, account for you have named it or answered it in so many different ways, but I want to give you kind of one like more generalized summation back to this notion of the portal of our, our whole society is shifting and you have discussed so many of the new political opportunities. If folks step into this portal of really taking seriously the mechanics of local power and local governance, what is more possible in our world? 
um, in our world, well, Chicago is the center of the world. <laughs> let us <laughs> let us tell it. So I'll say what's more possible in Chicago. Do that. Do um, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think like what one thing that's like also uh, really exciting me and giving me hope is like labor right now, like this resurgence of like new organizing, right? So like a really like strong and healthy public sector and like labor movement that like makes sure that folks don't just have jobs but they have good jobs right with like benefits and like i think like what's also possible like people in north lawndale don't have to like be sitting on the edge of their seats wondering if their kids school is going to be shut down you know um I think that like we have to talk about like ecological disaster and the fact that like if we get this right, we get to do like the just transition thing. Like we get to make sure that like we are creating infrastructure that involves good jobs. It involves like clean water, clean air. Um, we get access to public mental health care, right? We get to address like the root causes of of harm and conflict and violence. And I think that folks like are invited into rooms to make decisions that are going to impact them the most, like some more like participatory democracy and budgeting and zoning and all of these things. I think that like if we contest for all spaces, that if we got rid of like patriarchy and homophobia and racism, like if we contested for all all of those spaces that would still exist, right? So pretty much a lot of spaces, except for the police. Um, I, I think that like we get to see the expression of like what folks who filled out those petition sheets are saying that they want. You know, we get to like build this world and this city in our image. Um, and it is more of us than it is them, you know? And so, um, yeah, yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, keep beautiful. on keeping on, yeah. All right. Any any shout outs or anything you want to make sure folks know or are aware of coming out before we get out of here? No pressure. If not, you can just. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, I mean, plenty of love to, to y'all and to everybody listening. But also, if you live in the 6th, 20th or 33rd Ward on November 8th, you're going to see a question on your ballot that is asking if the city of Chicago should divest from the police to fund treatment, not trauma. And I do hope that you vote yes. Um, also, big shouts out to Chicago Torture Justice Center, uh, my, my new home. Uh, shout out to UWF um, for, for building something that is so necessary in the city. Shout out to Defund CPD, 33rd World Working Families, Stop. Um, and, and shout out to y'all. Appreciate y'all for having me. Yeah, so this this is the the portal. We we have gone through it. I am Damon Williams. And I'm Teresa Cordova. And as always, thanks to the Portal Project at SJI and UIC. And of course, thank you to all the listeners for going through the portal with us. Much love to the people. Peace out. <laughs>